Well, a few days before my senior year in high school, I made a decision that would profoundly shape the rest of my life. I decided that I would attend the University of Texas and pursue a degree in engineering. Now, that was a monumental decision in a number of different ways, especially by the fact that I lived in Wisconsin at the time, and I didn't know a soul who lived in Texas, but something was drawing me down there. And I'm so glad I made that decision for so many reasons. I met some amazing people while I lived in Texas. I got to experience Texas culture, which if you haven't experienced it, is rather unique. Uh, Got to experience good barbecue. I mean, like really good barbecue. Tex-Mex, like where it's from and all of that. And I get to wear burnt orange, which is the best collegiate orange around. But mostly I'm glad because that decision meant that five years later I would meet the incredible woman who would become my wife and best friend for now 33 years and counting. If you've been there, then you know that the University of Texas has a beautiful campus, and I'm a rather proud Texas graduate, so I just wanted to give you a little tour here. A beautiful campus. It sits on 40 acres in the heart of Austin with a prominent main building and its iconic tower sitting at the highest point in the middle of campus. One cool fact about that tower is, is that at the end, any time that a Texas sports team wins something, uh, they light up the tower in burn orange. I'm going to put this picture up on the screen, up on the top right. If they win a game, that's what it looks like. If they win a conference championship, that's what it looks like. And in those occasions where you win a national championship, it looks like that with a big number one in those buildings, which, by the way, happens quite frequently. Like a couple of weeks ago when the women's volleyball team took home a natty. Now, I could go on and on about the wonders of the University of Texas, but that's not why you're here this morning. And in case you're wondering, yes, there is a reason that I brought it up. As if I need a reason. (laughs) See, when you approach the main building at the University of Texas from the south, you will find a, a saying, a statement prominently engraved above the entrance. So put that one up here. Yeah, you can see that pretty well. It's a little, little bit in the shadow there, but it says, if you can't read it, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, the main building at the university there is but one of many prominent buildings around the world that feature this saying. A few that we'll have up here, up here on your left, my right, um, that is the, the floor in the main lobby at the CIA headquarters. Up here on the right, it's, a, it's over a library. This one happens to be at the University of Scranton in Pennsylvania. But a lot of times this is found uh, around libraries. And so there's that one. That one actually contains the reference, um, if you can read Roman numerals. Um, but down here on the bottom is an interesting one because this one is where it's split up. And it's one's over the east entrance and one's over the west entrance of the Knight Library at another Closer but less prominent university uh, happens to be green and yellow if you're familiar with that. And Yeah. Well, <laughs> these buildings feature this saying. Uh, most of them were constructed, if not all of them, in the early to mid-20th century at the height of what is known now as the modern age of humanity. The modern age was built on the confidence in absolute truth that it exists, and that it is discoverable, uh, usually using the scientific method. And that the idea that we as understanding, that we as humans can not only grasp truth, we can understand it. Toward the end of the 20th century, 
this belief in absolute truth began to crumble. And we entered into what has been called the age of postmodernism. Now, postmodernism is defined by skepticism about the existence of absolute truth and instead puts the emphasis on the transient or relative nature of truth. In a postmodern world, we hear and use phrases, you have your truth, I have my truth. The understanding that no one person or no one group has a corner on truth, it provides a refreshing relief from oppressive power structures that repress dissent in whatever the said truth may be. Yet, it also provokes a, a loss of confidence in belief systems and in institutions and has created tremendous uncertainty and a fair bit of anxiety, cultural and personal. Interestingly, you know what happens when anxiety increases, again, both personally as, as well as with groups of people? We crave and seek certainty. We crave and seek absolutes. <laughs> so, so we have this bind, do you hear it? We yearn for certainty, and yet we know in a sense that we cannot actually attain it. This provokes more anxiety. And oftentimes what we do is we seek security in platitudes, like love wins, or everything happens for a reason, something like that. Mildly comforting, of course, and yet we need so much more. So much more. Thankfully, more is available. That's why we're here. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John chapter 8 if you're not there already. If you didn't bring your Bible this morning, what we'll be talking about will be up on the screens as well. We're going to pick up this morning in John chapter 8, right where Justin left off last week, right in the middle of a long, contentious dialogue between Jesus and a group of people. It took place in the temple grounds in Jerusalem. If you were here last week, you recall that Justin left off with verse 30, which provided a seemingly hopeful statement. It says, where it says this, we see, and as he, meaning Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. So we're going to pick up after that in verse 31. Verse 31 says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So we'll stop right there and just set the context here. What Jesus has to say is clearly in that first verse there is spoken directly to these people who have declared belief in him. And the interaction that follows, it, it follows a pattern that we've seen before in the Gospel of John where somebody or some group of people declares belief and then Jesus interacts with them. And interestingly in these patterns, the pattern is that Jesus consistently showed that he wasn't interested in winning a popularity contest. And he certainly wasn't particularly enamored when people declared belief in him. In chapter 1, we saw this person, Nathaniel. You know, these different people were coming to him to become his disciples. And this Nathaniel came and he said, you know, he made the statement of belief. And Jesus replied rather dismissively. In chapter 6, where we see uh, people are starting to come and follow him by the thousands. And Jesus responded to that with head-scratching teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And, and the teaching was so out there that we read this difficult statement in chapter 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, one common stereotype of Jesus in today's world colors him as a really nice guy who never offended anyone. 
a soft, cuddly pacifist who went around with a plastered-on smile teaching platitudes. You know, basically Mr. Rogers with a beard wearing a robe and sandals. But that's not what we see in the scriptures. Though Jesus was exquisitely kind and gentle, especially to those who were marginalized, he was also operated with what author John Eldridge wonderfully called a fierce intentionality. Jesus knew the path to abundant life, and he wanted as many people as possible to get on that path. But he also knew that many of those who were listening to him were walking counterfeit paths, the most dangerous of which is and, or was and is the religious path. And so in a not so soft and snuggly way, Jesus challenged the religious people and rightly so, because as we read on in the weeks to come, you'll see that these so-called believers that he's speaking to ended up criticizing Jesus more severely than anyone else in all of John's account. Jesus was not content with mere belief. Instead, he offered what we might call a discipleship diagnostic. He, he declared, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, abide Abide is a favorite word Jesus used when trying to get, teach his disciples what it meant to follow him. In the original language, it was this Greek word menete, which meant to dwell or remain, kind of a, have a metaphor or a picture in your head of moving in and making yourself at home. It's what you would do, you know, when you move into a new home. You know, you set up everything where it needs to be and you make yourself comfortable. That's the picture that we can have in mind here with this word. In other words, the primary duty of a believer would be, and the mark of a true disciple is a settled determination to live within the word or the teachings of Jesus, which means regularly listening to it, reflecting on it, holding fast to it, even when it's hard to understand, and obeying what it has to say. So after declaring this discipleship diagnostic, Jesus made another bold statement, the very statement found on the main building of the University of Texas and on other prominent buildings around the world. Verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So now notice how this context changes our understanding of what that saying actually means. Now on the one hand, Jesus declared that absolute truth exists. You shall know the truth, not your truth, not my truth, the truth. But at the same time, truth is the follower in Jesus' sequence here, not the leader. It's, he said, abide in my word, then you'll be my disciple, and then the truth, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. In other words, both modernism and postmodernism only get it partially right. Absolute truth exists. But it doesn't originate in the universe to be uncovered with a scientific method. It doesn't exist in you or in me. That's not where it starts Truth abides or begins and ends with God, especially as revealed through the person of Jesus. So Jesus offered his listeners then and, quite frankly, now an amazing invitation to find truth and freedom in relationship with him. Now, with this group of people, rather than taking that next step toward Jesus, they took a step back. Verse 33, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say we shall become free? And here their counterfeit path is exposed. 
These listeners had something that they were clinging to for their, for their identity that superseded their belief in Jesus. These people were clinging tightly to a cultural identity, offspring of Abraham, and all of the religious teachings and practices that went with it. The very sense of who they were was intertwined, was interwoven with this cultural identity. We can know from other sources that they believed the lineage of Abraham, being children of Abraham, automatically covered all of their failings and guaranteed their place in the kingdom of God. For example, the Talmud, the authoritative collection of teachings that govern Jewish belief and behavior, said this, the meanest laborer who is of the seed of Abraham is like a king. Just because he's seed of Abraham. So they, so they, you can understand how they were befuddled. They were taken back by Jesus' insinuation that they needed to be freed from something. And their defensive reply, we've never been enslaved anyone, was rather ironic from a group of people whose foundational story involved rescue from slavery in Egypt, who spent decades in living in exile in Babylon as a conquered nation, who in Jesus' day were basically living as slaves in the Roman Empire. You see, their identity as children of Abraham had devolved into privilege. Their pride in a label had produced a settled sense of superiority. They had moved from being seekers of God to protectors of the status quo. And Jesus knew this. So he dropped all subtly and got to the heart of the matter. Verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, when you read through all four gospel accounts, uh, whenever you find Jesus saying that, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is like, hey, everybody, pay special attention here for you students in the room. This is like when the professor or the teacher says, What I'm about to say will be on the final exam. Yeah, that kind of whoa. Pay attention. But interesting, as this audience maybe leaned in a little bit, what Jesus said probably seemed like a head-scratching change of subject. Wait a minute, I thought we were talking about truth here, and now you're talking about sin. What they needed to realize, what we need to realize, is that by turning the topic to sin, Jesus wasn't changing topics. He was changing families. He was basically saying, sin doesn't care if you're a child of Abraham, because sin doesn't care about your family, your tribe, your nation, your creed. And oh, by the way, sin also doesn't care about your resume, your accomplishments, your accolades, your references. If you sin, you are a slave to sin. You are a part of the family of sin, which is important for understanding where Jesus goes next in verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So Jesus continues this household metaphor, if you will, to build toward his climax, which will come in the next verse. You see, there are two types of people who lived in households at the time, family members and slaves. Now, because of our own cultural history of race-based chattel slavery, it can be hard to understand Jesus' metaphor. In those times, a casual observer wouldn't necessarily be able to distinguish between slave and family member. Oftentimes, slaves came from the same culture, the same tribe. They sometimes possessed significant authority and responsibility and lived quite comfortably in the household. 
often they received great affection from those they worked for and returned that affection. But make no mistake, even the highest ranking and most loved servant did not have the rights and privileges of family members. They were still slaves. And even the worst sons had more rights than the best slaves. So these religious people, they thought they were children of God because of their lineage in Abraham. But when Jesus switched to the metaphor, they learned that rather than being children in God's household, they were actually slaves because of their bondage to sin. He was also letting them know that only one person could set them free. And that passage reaches its climax in verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus wanted these people who were clinging to the illusion of freedom to know that they could find true freedom. And the answer is in the bookend connections between verse 32 and verse 36. These two verses together make it clear that in the use of verse 32 by institutions devoid of connection to verse 36 is a lesson in missing the point. When we add in Jesus' words in John 14, verse 6, we understand that more than a proposition, truth is a person. And propositional truth is best learned in relationship with that person. With this understanding, we can see that postmodernism actually provided an important correction to modernism. Since truth is personal, then we will have a lived truth. And in some sense, you will have your truth and I will have my truth. And since truth is learned relationally, it makes sense that we will get closer to what is actually true when we're living in relationship with others. But postmodernism threw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater in its abandonment of absolute truth. Absolute truth exists in the person of Jesus. Only he can truly set us free because only he has the claim to true sonship in the kingdom of God. And here's the wonder of it all. He's generous with it. He's generous with it, freely offering it to anyone and everyone who puts their trust in him. Anyone and everyone can become a child of God because the son is ready to set us free. In the last verse that we'll cover today, Jesus made a foreboding statement, summing up all of this. I believe he makes a statement with kindness and yet with incisive clarity. Verse 37, I know, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. Jesus didn't dismiss their identity as offspring of Abraham. After all, he was one too. Instead, he returned to his discipleship diagnostic back in verse 31. These people who said they believed in him didn't pass the diagnostic test because their primary allegiance, their heart allegiance, was in something else rather than in Jesus, rather than in Jesus' teaching. And my friends, whenever that happens, the results are tragic. And so we arrive at that place during our time together where we ask ourselves, so what? And I have three primary takeaways for us today. In the first takeaway, I want you to ask yourself a question. Do I believe in Jesus or am I a disciple of Jesus? Okay, when it comes to responding to Jesus, it's not, Jesus, I believe in you. Now, will you come, come and make my life really good in, in the way that I want to go? 
Jesus, come fit into my life and empower me to achieve the things that I want to achieve. Jesus, come into my life and help me be who I want. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. What a disciple of Jesus says is, Jesus, I come to you, and I will come to you over and over and over because you have the words of life. You have the words of life, and only you can satisfy my soul. Am I a, a, do I believe in Jesus, or am I a disciple of Jesus? For the second takeaway, I have another question for you to ask yourself. What competes with Jesus for my primary allegiance? Okay, we all have something. Most of us have more than one thing (laughs) that competes. For the people in our story today, it was their identity as children of Abraham. And please hear me, there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus was too. But what was meant to be a means became the goal. What was intended to be second place became first place. And my friends, this can be true of anything. Anything. So for them, Jesus, descendant of Abraham. For us, Jesus, family. Wife, kids, parents. Where are my primary allegiance? Jesus, my job. Jesus, the pursuit of wealth or happiness. Jesus, Sexual expression, Jesus, gender identity, Jesus, pursuit of justice. Even good things become bad idols. When they, what's what was intended to be second place becomes first place. As Jesus taught in his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Keep first things first. Trust God to add the rest. What competes with Jesus for my primary allegiance? The third takeaway, truth exists. And we learn it best relationally. To understand this, I want to put a a brief little diagram up on the screen. And and this idea that propositional truth, or what we might understand as right answers, exists on a continuum with love. It's like we're always, this idea of truth and love are always uh, along the same spectrum. What we get wrong and where we go awry is is that we tend to go to the right answers first and and, and kind of build that sense of of community is first with the right answers and then we move toward love. And you have to believe the right things. You have to believe correctly in order to belong. This happens in churches and in religious uh, institutions all the time. All the time. But not only there. Hypocrites are not only here. In other words, this happens politically, this happens culturally, this happens racially, this happens socioeconomically, where you have to believe the right things first and then you can belong. Jesus went the other direction. Jesus welcomed everybody. He, 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 he treated everybody with absolute generous uh, welcoming, he had, with, with grace, with mercy beyond understanding. He was kind to anybody who came to him. Also, though, he didn't stay there. He didn't stay there. He taught propositional truth. There are right answers, in a sense. We saw this vividly expressed in the beginning of chapter 8 with the woman caught in adultery. Jesus didn't say, oh, you have your truth and I have my truth. No, he didn't. It wasn't anything goes. No. But acceptance first 
then here's the truth. So a couple of practical ideas for living this out. First of all, read your Bible. Remember that one? <laughs> Back in October, and that says, read your Bible. I just want to add one, one little word on the end of that, relationally. Relationally, in a sense, that sense of abide. I'm going to make my home here. Uh, as a, my first priority is enter into the joy and fellowship of the Trinity. That's why I'm reading my Bible. Then also read it to find propositional truth. Absolutely. Let's make sure we keep it that way. A couple of resources here that I've found helpful in this regard in terms of engaging your Bible relationally. Uh, one is a book, Life with God by Richard Foster. Another one is Eat This Book, love that title, by Eugene Peterson. Uh, a couple of helpful resources maybe for you there. But read your Bible, yes, relationally, to meet with God. The second, pursue relationships with others before pursuing right answers. The idea of belong and let before we have to believe. Transformation comes from learning truth in the context of relationship. Truth is more caught than taught. So as I mentioned earlier, served as a pastor. I served as a pastor for 17 years and recently transitioned to working as a full-time counselor, which I continue to find ironic in the sense of my first encounter with counseling was, let's just say, not all that positive. Uh, when I was at the University of Texas, at the end of my freshman year, I received a phone call uh, from, my from my father telling me that my, he and my mom were getting a divorce. And that news rocked my world. I, it came as a complete surprise. I was shocked. It turned my world upside down. And a phrase that sums up kind of like where I went from there is I was now looking for what was true. Because if my parents' marriage wasn't true, what else that they taught me wasn't true? Now, thankfully, I was embedded in a church, and I had some wonderful mentors, and one of those mentors invited me to go meet a counselor at the church. And so I did that, and I walked into that man's office alone and confused. And I don't have a lot, I don't have a lot of memory of what happened there, uh, but I do remember, just my memory of it was, it was cold, not temperature, terms of the relational. And I, the only thing I remember that he said to me or did to me is he slid this piece of paper across a coffee root table between us with a list of Bible verses for me to know. I left that office alone, feeling dismissed, feeling overlooked, and even more confused. <laughs> the irony was I already knew most of those verses. I had them memorized. I grew up going to a church and part of a youth group that emphasized memorizing the scriptures. I had hundreds, and that's not an exaggeration, hundreds of Bible verses memorized, including most of them on that page. I had built my entire sense of identity, just in life overall, around my intelligence, around my academic performance, around knowledge of right answers. I had them. But I knew very little about giving and receiving love. That man gave me propositional truth. It did not set me free. Fast forward 14 years, and not surprisingly, I found myself in another difficult spot. After graduating from the University of Texas, I married the woman of my dreams, and 10 years into that, I was living a nightmare, mostly of my own making. Interestingly, and even more embarrassing, I was working at the time for a full-time Marriage ministry, putting on conferences, marriage conferences around the country. I knew I'd reached the end of my rope. 
I looked across the room at this woman. I didn't want to be married to her anymore. And yet we had made a decision. Divorce was not an option. So I knew I needed to go get help. And there was a particular man I played basketball with. I'd known him for a while. And I knew that he was a pastor and a counselor. And I knew kind of like some things about him. And so I got up the courage one day after playing basketball to see if he would help me. Um, This is one of those moments. Maybe it's just for men. Maybe not. But where it's the proverbial like, so, hey, sir, mm, I have this. You know, would you, mm, right? You picture the awkward moment, you know, we put the basketballs onto the rack there and they were walking away and I say, excuse me, will you talk to me, you know, can you kind of talk to you for a minute? And he's, yeah, what's going on? And so I share a little bit what's going on and I don't remember much of what he said, uh, but I remember the feel of it. It went something like this. He says, oh, okay. Oh, so you're probably feeling, uh-huh. And she's probably, yeah. And you're probably responding, mm-hmm. And she, uh-huh. Then he he says, oh yeah, I can help you. Call my assistant and we'll set up an appointment. And I just remember kind of like, just feeling this exposed, kind of like, are are my problems that obvious? Can everyone see them, right? But I also remember being intrigued, being like pulled toward him because like the sense of of affection and confidence that he had for me um, drew me in. I met with that man a number of times over the next few months, and I left pretty much every meeting perplexed, yet intrigued. He rarely spoke directly. He rarely spoke directly to me. Instead, he would share stories and metaphors, and he asked a lot of open-ended questions, you know, a lot like Jesus. And when I answered his questions, he didn't seem to care about my answers, (laughs) instead, he would often just kind of go into another metaphor or tell another story. And I left almost every one of his meetings just like, what just happened? And yet at the same time, he always did, like he had this playful, knowing, humble look in his eyes that kept pulling me back. And each time that I came back, he would welcome me with kindness and grace and patience. You see, he knew, he knew that my identity was wrapped up in knowing the right answers. And if he had pulled that from me, he would get all the right answers. But he knew I needed more than that. I knew little, again, about how love worked and certainly not knowing how to abide in the truth. So after about five months, my marital and mental health hit a crisis point. I reached the end of my proverbial rope. I could no longer hide the shame and brokenness that was hiding behind a very well put on facade and everything just kind of came pouring out. And when I was at my absolute worst, that wise, kind, loving man met me in the middle of it with such grace. Such grace. But also he spoke some really hard, direct, hard to hear words right into my soul. And through that man, I met Jesus relationally in a way I'd never experienced before. And my life was transformed. He helped me abide in the truth or abide in Jesus' words. And I received the truth and the truth set me free.